my experience of my being on this path of practice has been greatly aided by looking into this area of faith over and over again at the various junctures of my practice and of my life in general. And I find that I really have to touch into this idea, this understanding, this possibility, uh, the weakening of it, the strengthening of it at times in my own life. And mostly it's not faith in so much a spiritual path or a religion or an idea that people that I greatly uh, admire have faith in. But it's mostly about faith in myself. And uh, when the Buddha talked about faith, he really uh, talked about faith in terms of it really comes down to having faith in ourselves that we can actually open to what we have to open to in order to develop wisdom and compassion. So I want to talk about this trusting that we can have in ourselves, this potential for transformation that we're all here because we have some idea that we have some potential for transformation. Maybe not every one of us wants to be like fully liberated or attain nirvana or nirvana, but we just, not just, we want to be good human beings. And that's what brings us all together here. That's what really connects us on a, on a special level, on a level that's, uh, maybe it means different things to us or has different intensities in terms of how we feel that, but that's what connects us at a special, deep level. So I have this tapestry, this weaving together of areas of faith that we can tap into and just begin to be aware of in ourselves. So these aren't the answers they're, they're, that I'm going to offer you. They're, they're just understandings, ideas, potentials, ways that we may take in in looking at ourselves in relationship to faith in ourselves and in those who might offer us ways that we can connect with ourselves more deeply. So what's going to help us keep going? That's a big question. What's going to help us navigate our way through this sometimes feels like quagmire of our own minds, of the complexity of our own lives? And how do we parse that out so that we can make sense of it? And we're starting at at very basic points here. You know, we're starting at this very basic foundation, beginning of looking within ourselves. Instead of looking out there in the vast complexity of the world and all the beautiful advice that could come from many great beings. But what's so special about the teachings of great masters is that they bring you inwards, quiet down, see if we can see within the silence and the stillness of our own hearts and minds what needs to be transformed 
not just where the transformation is going to take us, but what needs to be transformed and to be able to face that and not give up on ourselves completely. Sure, there are times when it's really difficult and we want to take a break and we have a sense, I can't remember who said this, I have to look it up, I can't go on, I go on. You know, you have that feeling in a moment, but you're still willing to take that next step. And sure, there are times when we need to take a break, we need to do something else, you know, maybe we just need to look at trees instead of ourselves, or sit by a river as the Buddha did, and listen to the river and learn from that, the impermanence of that somehow. It's really so hard to keep going. I'm with you in that, if, if you admit that about yourselves. I feel that. Different times at different intensities. So there are so many outer conditions that can activate inner conditions of this uneasiness. Like, how can I do this? And somebody gives a, you know, a helpful instruction is, why don't you incline the mind here a little bit, over and over again? And it's just so impossible to do. A lot of people come across that, not just the one person who might say it in a group, but so many of us come across that in our spiritual life, in our daily life. When we feel destabilized by losses of the past or the present, or we fear the losses of the future, we sense within ourselves and all around us this sea of vulnerability. A big thing that we're looking at in, our, in ourselves is vulnerability in and of itself. Said that it's very difficult to realize all the Four Noble Truths if we don't even open to the first one. The first one is the truth that there is suffering. This is dukkha, satcha, the truth of suffering. And in our practice here, that's what we gain the courage and the experience to go through over and over again, to, to open to that vulnerability. We see it's shaky all the time. You know, we, we start to do our practice and little things can stop us and big things can stop us from and we have to learn to overcome them over and over again i'm just thinking right now of some teaching that came from sokni and rinpoche's father tulku ergen when they were um, going through some teaching and there was a lot of noise going on around them and Toko Ergen was giving these great teachings of the view, you know, of how to see life so that we see it clearly. And there was uh, some construction going on in the, around the center that they were at. And I can't remember which one of the sons said it, but said to the father, it could have been Sokni Rinpoche, one of his sons said to the father, um, maybe we should go someplace else. You know, or tell them to stop, or come back another time, or I think it was mostly go, go someplace else. And his father, Tulku Urgan, who's a great Tibetan master, said, if you can't handle this, how are you going to handle the bardo? You know, that, the, <laughs> that you go through, you know, when you die, which the Tibetans, 
have fully laid out. Whether we believe it or not, you know, it's we might have to go through something at the time of death. And when we hear stories about that from others, we can see, oh, that might be true, right? So how can we go through our, our frustrations, our whatever, we can't do this, we can't do that. And we have something great that we have to go through in our lives. Not just spiritual awakening, but death itself. This is preparing for that. So we can feel destabilized in this sea of vulnerability, this sea of changing conditions that we are facing over and over again. It's scary. It's scary when we see this over and over again. We see something blissful and it disappears. We see something, you know, that's difficult and we have to live through the ups and downs of that in our sittings. So we need to know how to touch into that environment inviolable quality of faith. It's mostly faith in ourselves. We have a lot of teachings around us and a lot of teachers who can present uh, ways that we can go through this and maybe have faith in them, but it all boils down to faith in ourselves. A poem from uh, David White, and this is entitled Faith. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over the cold snow, night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith in myself. I refuse it the smallest entry. Let this, then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. And sometimes we, we really feel that deeply. We want to have faith in ourselves. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a wholesome wanting, a wholesome reaching in within ourselves for that faith. So how how is faith held in the Dharma, this area of teaching? The Dharma means the truth of how things are. The Buddha didn't own the Dharma. Dharma just means the truth of how things are. And so this truth we're finding out in ourselves. And that's what this particular teacher of our world cycle pointed to. We have to know this truth within ourselves. And all the teachings are leading to that. It wasn't about this person, it was about the teachings. So each one of us has come here to be on this spiritual path because we have some faith, or maybe we were desperate for something. That's what got me in the Dharma. I was desperate to understand something about life that would get me through life at that time. And... I had some deep intuitive knowledge, understanding, intelligence, and some experience that our practice would benefit, my practice would benefit if I just had more faith in myself. That I realized that I could go on and on just giving up on myself or just seeking something easier than faith in myself 
or doing the practices that would lead me there. So just remembering a a story when I was in my first month-long retreat. Later on, I'll tell what led up to that in in a little way, but um, I went far away to Australia to my first month-long retreat that my first teacher um, suggested that I go there to learn from Seda Upandita, who was a much stricter teacher than Munindra. And he wanted me to learn from that kind of precision and strictness. But Manindra was a very open-hearted, soft-hearted, compassionate person. And so this was a balance that I needed. So I went there to Australia, and I was doing the practice as was uh, laid out. Very difficult uh, program, daily program. And... um, I used to go to my room uh, in the first days. I would be in this uh, this sort of dormitory that was as big as this place, this whole, and it was lined up with beds all along the side. And that's where I slept with the rest of the women. And it was really cold, and I was really cold at night. And then it was hard during the day to be there. And uh, I would. it was an old... Um, sort of a nunnery for retired nuns, retired Catholic nuns. And at the end of the day, which was about after our uh, last meal of the day, day, I would go by the room where they were saying novenas, rosaries. And I so much just wanted to go in because I was raised a Catholic. That was so much easier and I did that for a long, long time, and I, I really gained from that. That was a gain for me, you know, uh, just learning that kind of concentration and more than that. But um, I was so tempted to go in because it was so easy, and I didn't just want to go into that silent sitting where I, ju- I had to look at myself. I had to look at all the fear and all the difficulties and the, um, you know, comparing mind with the other yogis that were there and everything else that one goes through in redo. I can't do this. And um, there were many other things. But sometimes it's so easy to just go with what's easier to do. And this is not an easy path to, to take. So, um, again, a little... I was reading this novel once. Some of you probably heard me say this about these two spies. I just picked up this novel somewhere and I'm just going to read this as a distraction. I wasn't in a retreat, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was reading it and one um, one spy says to the other, well, what do you do in your spare time or something? And that spy said something about, oh, some kind of adventure. And that's why I asked the other one, what do you do? And the, that's why I said, oh, well, I do the pasana practice. This was, this was actually in the <laughs> And that other spy said, wow, that's really hardcore. <laughs> so it, it isn't, this isn't easy taking a look at ourselves. This is pretty hardcore to do this. 
So we do have some intuitive intelligence to come here because we know we have this common yearning, all of us together, in a different ways, to deepen this inner peace, to be less reactive towards ourselves mostly, and to be less reactive in the world. So that no matter what stones of destabilization are thrown into the pond of our lives, the pond of our hearts, we, we have a sense that we know that even though we're temporarily destabilized, we're not going to say, I give up. We're going to say, okay, we've got the patience, we've got the understanding to wait this out or to know what the opposite action or inner being has to come up to face this to do to be able to navigate our way through that time. We have this common yearning to be more at ease of how our moment-to-moment experiences are unfolding uh, in retreat and otherwise. We're learning to relax. We're doing that together. We as teachers are doing that along with you. You're not alone. You know, we've We've navigated the way for 40 years Steve, or more, Steve and I advance, for many, many years too. But we're still, like I love what Manindra says, my path is not yet finished, you know, no matter how long we've been on it. So even though it's difficult, we've got the good fortune to really see the deep habit patterns of the mind. Imagine if we did not see these deep habits of patterns of the mind. We would just go around and round being pulled by those habit patterns, pushed and pulled, and we'd never learn that they were there to find a counteraction or a way to kind of um, uproot them from being habit patterns. So we know somewhere, we know in our minds that we have to do that. We can't just let the habit patterns or the ways our old belief systems about ourselves or about the way we see the world to lead us around. We have to have our own understanding, our own intelligence through experience. So we want to get in touch with that wholesome yearning to be free from those tenacious habit patterns. We want to learn those patterns that will free us. We want to be able to stay with our moment-to-moment attention on something. If the mind goes away, come back. If the mind goes away, come back. And be with whatever has to be with. If we're doing whatever practice, come back to that. It may, something may take us away, but we have to be that faith in our, have that faith in ourselves to be tenacious enough about doing the practice that We're not going to let that be in the way. We're going to start over again, whatever it is. So that's getting in touch with the wholesome yearning to be free and doing those practices to free us. What frees us from fear and aversion and shame, as uh, Hal was saying today, is what fears us from uh, uh, ameliorates in in the beginning and actually begins to weaken it incredibly is that metta practice, is compassion practice, is equanimity practice. All those practices help us to get more and more free from those patterns so that we can enter into a deeper uprooting of those patterns. 
So we have to be able to venture towards what is unknown, yet unknown. And we have to have faith that there is that capacity for us to do that. Because there are people in this world who have done that, and we we connect with them and we see, or maybe we hear of them or, or read about them, and we know that there are free people, free human beings, maybe that are, that are still living in our lifetime, and maybe those who have passed away, who have gone on already. So this is the real birth of faith, actually, when we have faith in ourselves. We might experience faith as even more powerfully, and some of you might have felt that, but you haven't named it yet. And that is a powerful sense of spiritual urgency. A sense that there's this urgency inside of us to understand what leads to happiness and what leads to um, relinquishing unhappiness, relinquishing disharmony in ourselves and others. I mean, all that's happening in the world right now, if we're open to it, for a lot of people... I, I'm learning from my, um, from my colleagues who run uh, retreat centers and from the retreat center that we're all connected with mostly is Insight Meditation Society and with um, Spirit Rock um, on both the East and the West Coast that there is, when the opening day comes for application for retreats, retreats get full right away nowadays. And there's even a waiting list. There's the last, um, last year the waiting list for Joseph Goldstein's retreat was 600 people. Yeah, which I teach with him every year. So, it, and there, people are just wanting to understand more and more deeply. If this retreat had a waiting list. Uh, other retreats, uh, various kinds, three-day retreats, you know, large, uh, long waiting lists for those everywhere. Not so much long, but at least waiting lists. So this spiritual urgency is happening. I think it happened during the time, in the day when uh, our generation, Stephen and I, many of you went through the Vietnam War, you know, and there was this sense of urgency to understand peace at a different level. And that's, that's what part of what what drew, drove me also. That was around during my time. So spiritual urgency. There's a word in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddhist teachings were translated in, in uh, that describes spiritual urgency um, as this word called samvega. S-A-M-V as in Victor, E-G-A, sometimes pronounced samvega. And it, that spiritual urgency is not towards enlightenment so much. I mean, that's, enlightenment is a very loaded word. But in the Dharma, in, at least in the Theravada, we call it more the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion from one's heart and mind. When the mind and heart is completely free of that, there's this really deep sense of freedom and, and lightness in the mind. And so there, there's a gradual sense of that on the, on, the Theravada, on the Theravada path, and I think other paths too, where that is gradually, greed, hatred, and delusion, gradually released. 
One of our guiding senior teachers of this whole tradition, Larry Rosenberg, he was the founding teacher of uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. <coughs> he um, said this about Samvega. Samvega leads to the conversion, the freeing of the heart from an egocentric existence to a search for what is timeless, vast, and sacred. And so many people can call this by different names, too, you know, by uh, God, by the all, by whatever it is. And so we call this the complete purification. So in our own unique ways, we have felt this deeply in ourselves. It's a very deep spiritual need we're here about. It's way beyond the need for survival. You know, people reach for spiritual, that spiritual need to complete that, that kind of um, altruistic reach that we have in ourselves, for ourselves, and for the benefit of all beings. Beyond the need for survival. So we have this aspiration, and by aspiration I don't mean attachment to some kind of goal that we want to reach something. But this aspiration is like an open-ended journey where we're gra- it's a gradual development, a gradual purification as we go on the journey together. So on this journey, we take great care to simply recognize the habit patterns of the mind and heart. The beautiful ones we learn to develop, and the, and the other ones, the greed, hatred, and delusion, and all its manifestations, we learn to just bring awareness there, so we're not feeding them in any way. Just bringing the mirror of awareness to them, letting them arise, letting them do their thing, and pass away. And in time, through that development, wisdom arises, and there's more ability for that natural letting go to take place, that natural renunciation. So along the way, those uh, defilements connected with greed, hatred, and delusion are weakened. They become less and less powerful in our minds. They They drive us in our minds less in our speech and behavior. Uh, we're driven by them less. And so we, we learn to live with a more purified and more courageous heart and mind. That they can be overcome. At the same time, the Buddha developed trainings that lead to the good. The training in generosity, the training in loving kindness and in compassion, sympathetic joy, the training in equanimity. These are all the trainings that the Buddha laid out for us as human beings to develop so that it's easier to face the defilements within and in the the world. It doesn't uproot those defilements, but it weakens them and it makes us easier for this heart and mind to actually reach the end of the path, which is a complete purification of greed, hatred, and delusion. So this is a real dynamic process that we're we're undergoing, where 
we are awakening dormant capacities that we have to develop the good, the beautiful qualities of the mind. This gives us a deep sense of inner safety. When we know we have that capacity, that no matter what stones are thrown into our lives, it may be have a difficult impact, it may have like a, a terrible uh, impact in the way we live or the way we feel inside, but somewhere deeper than that is a faith that we can get through this, that we can get through this difficult time and it's going to lead to something else where we can feel more balance in our lives. And even when there's imbalance, we can find a way to hold that too. So it's really trusting in ourselves. It's trusting our highest potential. Maybe we can't trust ourselves in those moments. But maybe we can trust that we have this higher potential. It's there. We've seen pieces of it. When we, we can no longer take the pain in our bodies or the pain of a memory or a fear of the future, but we can see that it can be overcome moment by moment. So there's a, the time when... <clears throat> the first time I, I learned of relying on my own inner goodness um, in a real practice way was when I decided for the first time to take on the robes as a temporary ordination as a nun. And I went to Burma for the first time to practice in a monastery there, having um, also ordaining as a nun. It's so far away from the comforts of home, it wasn't easy to be in, a, in this third world country where the, it's difficult with food, with the weather, it's just difficult with um, pollution all around. Conditions are hard. And at that time, I was already in my 50s and going through hormonal changes, you know, hot flashes, and then experiencing the heat of Burma with robes that were multi-layered <laughs> and made out of polyester. So I felt like I was living in plastic. And then also outward heat, inner heat, and sometimes I thought, what am I doing here? And um, in Burma, it's, it's, you have really got it good here. It's really silent. And we're not afraid to eat the food. And Even at this monastery, it, the food was actually pretty good, but you still could get stomach stuff happening. And... Um, but you had to be careful, you know, they, they told me you have to be careful, don't watch out for the green snake because if you have a bite from the green snake, we might not have time to get you to the hospital. It, it, they have, you know, snakes and things that I'm not used to because Hawaii is snake free. And um, so there, there, are things, there were things like that happening, my own health. And I went to Upandita and I said, um, here I am, and I want to take the ordination as a robes. And he said, why are you here? You're so far away, you can do this in more comfort in your own country. And I wanted to be surrounded by that culture. Um, I'm Asian also, part Asian, and I wanted to be surrounded by that Asian culture 
and by roots that I felt that I may have had even in other lifetimes. And, and it, he's my teacher also, and even though I've had teachings from him in the West. And so I said, I'm here to purify my heart. Um, and so if, you wouldn't say to him, I'm here to be enlightened. I mean, that would be like, <laughs> you're here to purify your heart. Uh, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion. And he, he said, you must be willing to invest everything you have in your practice. And I, at first, you know, I said, he can't mean, you know, so, something like uh, monetary resources because we didn't have to pay anything to be there. It was completely free to be in the monastery. You could give something if you wished. Um, and what he meant, it, it just took me a moment to understand, I must be willing to look at my own resources and put them forth. And I, had, I thought about that briefly, and I thought, I have learned a lot of resources. I have gotten a lot of training in the Dharma, in the Brahma Viharas. I you know, could do more. I have more to go. But I've gotten the training in the Brahma Viharas and mindfulness and awareness practice, Vipassana practice. And I need to bring that forth. Patience, perseverance, renunciation. I was doing the renunciation bit so that I could practice more renunciation uh, by giving up, you know, my, my being a lay person and being a nun and just living on a few things. So it really meant that I had to recognize and I had to bring forth whatever was in me to face whatever I had to face in that practice. Patience, equanimity, that unconditional care I could have for my practice, for my own potential for awakening. So there was a lot of resolve I had to make and a lot that I had to... um, admit in myself and not just say, oh no, you know, I'm, I'm not good at this, and which doesn't get you anywhere in the practice. You have to really admit you have this strength within you. And to be able to admit it, you have to be able to do the practice, no matter what's happening. So this was needed. In the Dharma, faith is the energy needed the most. And faith is not something that we're, we want and get attached to. Faith in the Dharma, the word is sada, S-A-D-D-H-A. And actually, sada means seeking the good. It's not like wanting the good. It's like turning your mind towards what is good and going towards that. So you're, you're seeking it because it's wholesome. You know that it's a wholesome thing to do. It's good good for us to do that, to bring up our courage, to bring up all the things that are needed in order to face whatever is to be faced. So it's said that faith is regarded as a wise hand. When you look this up, I think it's in the um, Path of Purification, which is some people know as the Sudhimaga. It's said that faith is regarded as a wise hand a wise hand that reaches out, not as, you know, clinging, but it reaches out to take hold of what is truly valuable. And sada means to place it on your heart. 
It's actually a verb, to place it on your heart. So we place what is valuable on our hearts, and we try to take action with that. So we see what's valuable, and this is what the Buddha said, what is valuable? What to take up, reach out to take and place it on our hearts and actually to do that. The first thing that is valuable is to seek out spiritual friendship, to seek out wise counsel. Who else in the world would say, you know, it's only your deep friends or your your teacher would say, you need to go to a month-long retreat. (laughs) You need to take a time for silence and inner reflection. Not very many of our, I mean, we can't even talk about this to many of my good friends. I don't even, they, they hardly know me is what I am. You know, even my children don't know exactly what I do. They, they would think it's just almost impossible to see me in front of all of you. <laughs> One time they, they went with me to Cloud Mountain Retreat Center to deliver me there to offer a retreat. And we went by the hall, and you can see in the hall, and they said, Oh, Mom, what, I know you work here. What do you do here? And I said, Oh, I teach here. And they said, Well, you, really? Where do you, where do you sit? And I said, I sit right over there in the front. And my daughter just couldn't. Believe that I do that. <laughs> I'm just the mom. <laughs> and I like being just the mom. You know? I, I like that role too. Not always, but <laughs> so seeking spiritual friendship, seeking wise counsel. And this is what a good friend does. You know, with if you're if they say think that you need something or need to take a look at This is what a good friend does to say that to you, to be able to say truthfully to you what you may need or where you may need to go to handle whatever next you need to handle. And another um, opportunity that could fulfill our noble aspirations is to hear and read the Dharma, to read the truth of how it is, so the Dharma is expressed in many different ways. You know, I, I hear it in poems too. Um, but hearing the Dharma from great beings who have experienced it. Um, they say it's, it's necessary to hear the Dharma in order to go forth, in order to, um, in order to make sort of progress or go on the right path with our practice. Now, I never thought that I could realize anything more than just kind of a peaceful, little bit calm mind and um, maybe some moments of bliss. I never thought I could experience anything more than that until I heard that, oh, this, what this practice or this path leads to is something more than that. And it would be explained to me or somebody would say, oh yes, so-and-so in this life completed these stages of enlightenment or these stages of purification, and you can too. And so I I never had thought unless I heard it from somebody else. So that's why it's important to hear the Dharma and the possibilities. 
The third way is to practice in this way of solitude and silence in nature or wherever we can practice. Practice this dharma, this seeing things as they really are, vipassana, in this way. And then the dharma can be realized. Anything that inspires faith to carry out our highest aspirations. So this is sada, the word for faith in Pali. It is more like a verb than a noun, because sada means to establish trust. That's its characteristic. It's, um, it's described as a verb, to establish trust in ourselves. Establishing trust in ourselves as we navigate the terrain of our practice. Not just in ourselves, but to establish trust in those we trust and to follow the guidance. So it's said that one of the functions of faith is to enter into, to be able to cross the flood of opposition that terminology is often used as a way of saying to be able to overcome the opposition, which is fear, resistance, doubt, feelings of inadequacy. That's the opposition. Greed, all the manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. So during my own practice, it gave me so many opportunities to feel the strength and confidence in my own heart by actually facing them, by opening up to them and being able to sustain my practice no matter what happened. There there were times when I could fall in a puddle of tears to my own teachers. And I remember the one time, I think some of you have heard this story in, in another talk of where I was telling a time when I was opening to something inwardly that was really scary, and that was the vulnerability of being human, basically. And um, it didn't have anything to do with any psychological thing or past experience or trauma. It just had to do with really seeing that deep vulnerability of being human and just falling into a puddle of tears on the and saying, I can't do it, I'm going to go home. I'm, that was in Australia. I just can't do this. And the two of them talked together, Seda Upandita, and the, there was a Nepalese monk, Uniyanaponika. He spoke English. He spoke to uh, Upandita. And they spoke back and forth. And I didn't know what they were saying. But in English it came back to me. Uniyanaponika said, um because I was crying, and I don't think Upandita had come to the West yet at that time. <laughs> so he, he didn't have many Americans that he had experienced with, you know. So the, the monk said, Seidauji uh, says, when you feel you can't go on anymore, and that's when I was doing walking meditation, I, a lot came up and I felt like I can't go on. And I, so I said, that's when it happens. So he said, oh, the teacher says when you can't go on anymore, you must bend down and pull up your socks and begin again. <laughs> <laughs> I think they did not know what to tell me. 
I was just, you know, like crying like a drama queen. And so I was really sincerely upset about what I was seeing, just the vulnerability of impermanence and the lack of where is the self that I thought was here. And anyway, um, so from this time on, you know, I, I still remember that with a little bit of delight when I'm having a hard time and go pull up my socks. <laughs> but it gets really hard, and you have to have faith and confidence in yourself. It's not something we're going to give you. You have to do it for yourself. You know, you, we can't get, when, whenever we go to Upandita with some kind of, like, he knows we're going to try to reach out for his, you know, blessing or his, like, okay, you're doing okay. He rarely did that. It was, if he said, please carry on, that meant you were doing good. Just to say that, that was really good. You know, really good feedback. But mostly, they'd have these fans. How many of you have been to Burma or within? And you've seen the big brown fans they have? It's like they would put the fans up. Don't reach out for anything. You have to do it yourself. And so, if you can't do it, if Upandita didn't think you would follow his advice, basically, he didn't want to see you. He, you had to be really, really courageous to keep going. So, it, it really makes you step up to the plate to do that, to sustain your practice, to allow what needs to be seen to be seen. So in the Dhamma, there are three areas of faith. Um, tonight I'm talking about faith in oneself mostly. But there's faith in the teachers as number one, and faith in the teachings as number two, and number three is faith in oneself. So I'm just going to briefly faith in the teachers and faith in the teachings, because mostly this is about faith in oneself. So faith in the teachers, we have to choose teachers we have trust in, who actually can embody the teachings and not just speak about them, but we see that they're walking their talk. I mean, Mark, one of the teachers of this area, is a perfect example of that. And we all have our faults and our limitations as human beings, but really being true to living up to the highest potential that we have. So my first teacher, uh, Anagarika Munindra, um, who many of us have been taught by, he exemplified compassion and kindness. He exemplified accepting whoever the student was as you are. He didn't, he didn't have these high demands of you know, really doing the practice. He was really kind. He was a bit quirky, too, but very down-to-earth. But his compassion was in the foreground. And he was the one who sent me to Upandita because I was, you know, coming from a, a bit of... Um, I wasn't always so strict with myself in the practice. And when I went to Upandita, he was stricter with me. His, what stood out in him, he's known as the Wiriya uh, uh, Seda, which means the energy Seda. He was really big on 
take the energy, do put your energy into the practice. And there were, you know, difficult times of needing to get up very early and sleep very late and just have one time I asked him, I was doing metta practice as a long practice, and I said, Sayadaji, how long must I sleep? And he said, get full rest, sleep four hours. That <laughs> 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 to him, that was full rest. Yeah. Um, but he was one of the people who had this, and he had this like fierce energy of... Uh, and he just was so deeply understanding the suttas. But he also had that compassion that would uh, say, I know you can do this. He had so much trust in you as a person if, he showed, if you showed that you were really sincere, that he had fierce compassion, that he wanted you to really purify your heart completely. And that that is something that I haven't experienced in any other teacher. So Steve and I were talking one evening not too long ago was who was the most important person in our lives. And by I knew right away it was Manindra was helped me and he was great. But it was Upandita because he really followed me along in my practice. And he never he never pulled any punches. He, he just pointed out what I was not doing enough of. And so I said, okay, I'll try. You know, and just by giving it some try, or he would say, don't do that. <laughs> and so, okay, you know, don't go there. So, faith in the teachings, that's important to talk about. So there's faith in oneself that mostly I talked about, then faith in the teachers, and now faith in the teachings. There's a saying in our tradition, pasiko, which means come and see for yourself. Don't believe me, you know, just come and see for yourself, try it out. People would come to Manindra, he would tell me stories when he lived in that when he lived in India, people would come to him and they wanted to learn Vipassana. And uh, so they would come to him to learn. He lived in Bodhgaya, and um, he was a kind of a, a superintendent of um, the Vihara there. And so people came to learn from him, including um, Joseph Goldstein, who was with him for seven years in, in Bodhgaya. So when people would come to him and say, Oh, I like this, but I'm going to go and... Um, uh, I'm going to go uh, to the Himalayas and I want to trek the Himalayas first. Or I want to go someplace else with some other... He was not... He did not say, Oh, you stay and do this. Why don't you... He wasn't that kind of fierce like that. But he would just say, You go. Go and do whatever you need to do. If you want the Dharma, you have to come and see for yourself. He wasn't forceful. He wasn't like, um, you know adamant or like so enthusiastic about it. And if people didn't care, he just let them go. And that's how it is. I've kind of learned that. When people aren't sincere, I don't, I don't try to hang on. Just say, do what you need to do. 
So there's a saying, that saying, Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. When a group of people called the Kalamas in India went to the Buddha and said they'd been visited by many teachers who had divergent views, they were perplexed and they asked the Buddha what to do. Well, the Buddha never placed demands on people's faith. And he would say, Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Test it out. So he gave this very famous uh, talk to this group of peoples, which is how we present the Dharma also. So this is quotation from the suttas, from the Buddha's words. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor or scriptures, nor upon your bias opinion, nor upon the consideration that This is our teacher. When you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, blamable, censored by the wise, that when undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm, then relinquish them. However, when you yourselves know these things are good, blameless, praised by the wise, when undertaken and observed, you know these things lead to benefit and happiness, then enter upon and abide in them. So this is the faith that in, in the teachings that the Buddha is asking us to do, to test it out for ourselves. So in, the, in faith in oneself, there are different kinds of faith. And you can see how that might be for yourself. There's blind faith, there's bright faith, and there's verified faith. In a nutshell, blind faith is when we cannot trust our own experience. Why? Because we haven't investigated it. This whole practice is about investigating what is our experience. Can we come to know it? Can we we open to that? When we know how we are, nobody can tell us how we are. You know, when somebody tries to tell me what I'm feeling, I just think, you're telling me how I'm feeling? <laughs> it's like a... You're, never mind, I won't go <laughs> So, blind faith is when we can't trust our own experience because we don't know it. When we know our experience, we feel a lot of... Com- even when we know our, the defilements, we can feel a lot of confidence about ourselves. Because when we know the defilements, when they come up, we can say, mm-mm, not going there. But when we're just led around by them, we, we can't even do that. We just let the default setting take over. But when we know what's coming up, we can relinquish it if it leads to harm. When we know it's a beneficial thing, when we, it leads to good, we can feed that. So we can't trust ourselves if we don't know ourselves. I love this uh, quote by Rilke. said, Let no place in me hold itself closed, for where I am closed, I am false. And that really meant a lot to me as I was practicing the Dharma. That really led me to say, I'm not really true to myself if I don't know every part of myself. There were some parts of myself, like shame, that maybe 
not as difficult as other people's, but still hard to open to. So we're doing the opposite here. We're coming to know ourselves. So the second different kind of faith is bright faith. Bright faith is when a person, a reading, or a place inspires us deeply and illuminates new possibilities for our potential. Faith is bright at that time, but there's still a degree of dependence on someone else's brightness to light up our life when we feel that dependence. I mean, most teachers who are like that always say, you have to go understand this for yourself. But still, you know, we get attached to that. It's important to still have them in our lives to venerate, not saying to give them up completely, but to know our job is to see, can we develop that in ourselves? And not to depend on their brightness to light us up. You know, there, there were times when I was myself, like I would hang around people who had bright faith because it made me feel bright. But I wasn't doing the practice to brighten my own heart. That didn't last very long. But I know I went through that period of time. Sometimes I had to borrow someone else's faith, my teacher's faith in me. And uh, it was when I heard uh, stories about Deepama. Deepama was uh, a woman, of a lay person, not a monastic. She was a, a mother and a housewife. And um, she was a great being and a relative of Manindraji. And Manindraji would tell me that he gave her instructions in practice, in the practice of concentration and also in Vipassana. And he was honest enough to say that she surpassed him in his attainments in the Dharma, in realizing the Dharma. I never met her, but she became a major role model for me as bright faith. Because Manindra would tell me stories about her, and he would, when he, at the end of the story, he would say, you can do that too. That's how I borrowed my own teacher's faith in me. That he would always say, you can do that too. So, I just wanted to read something about her uh, to kind of um, impart her uh, to her sense of being to you too. This was written by, I want to read you something that was written by Jack Engler. Um, he was a Harvard Medis- Medical School Department of Psychology head of that. And he was a very revered meditation teacher. He's retired now, connected to Insight Meditation Society. He knew Deepama, and he went to test all these people who had kind of attainments of of stages of enlightenment or purification. And he said, Deepama had this unshakable and contagious conviction that, of course, this complete purification was possible. It never crossed her mind for a minute that it wasn't. She conveyed that in everything she said or did. It was one of her gifts as a teacher to make you say, well, of course, it's possible. When you asked her, is that possible for me too? She'd say, of course it's possible. When she thought a student's practice was so-called right, 
She would tell them to settle their affairs at home and come and stay in a room in her house and devote themselves exclusively to practice. Give me a week. Give me two weeks, she would say. And they would attain something or, you know, uh, purify some measure of great hatred and delusion in their own hearts. It was typical during this time of intensive practice that they actually experienced awakening. That's another reason for remembering people like Deepama. She embodied so deeply that level of realization in a traditional way and was able to convey it just through her presence. The promise that this practice holds out for human life to come to the end of suffering. It is so easy for that to get lost in readjusting our sights to something lower than that in this practice. So she would always say, go for the highest, even when somebody said in her presence, only a man can attain Buddhahood. She said, I can do anything a man can do. And I said, go for it. (laughs) That's my girl. (laughs) So verified faith is the last one. We have blind faith, bright faith, and now verified faith. And that's when we have experienced through our own efforts the skills to deal with what's difficult in times of practice and the skills of practicing and training ourselves in those beautiful qualities of mind so that they can act as a foundation for that strength that we need to go through more difficult periods. So then we can realize the deepest truth of the Dhamma. So qualities that we need to develop this, to have this faith, the first quality is the willingness to venture beyond the familiar. The willingness to be uncomfortable in the terrain of our hearts and our minds and in our bodies. The humility to develop the skills to navigate that terrain. Sometimes, I don't sense it from anyone here, but sometimes we can feel too proud, you know, or we we just can't go through that pain because it makes us look weak or whatever. Spiritual awakening, according to Trumpa Rinpoche, is one humiliation after another. (laughs) We really have to, I can't take this, we've gotten to our edge, you know, and, and it's the ability to go past that edge. The ability, the ability to endure that and get to a place where can, we can get interested and curious about it. And the last one is to choose a teacher that will give you honest feedback. Not, a, you know, a teacher that kind of says, you can do it, you can do it, but to, to, it, to be able to admo- be admonished by someone and to take a look at that. You know, a teacher that might do that. So as, as the Buddha pointed out, and as Deepama pointed out, this is devotion. It's not devotion to a path. It's not devotion to a kind of training that's put out. Of course, you have to try it out. If it doesn't work, then do something else. But it's not like we have to do it like we're, we're bowing down to it. or We have to be humble to take something and try it out, and to have devotion to our path, to our own path of practice, to our own potential for awakening, 
That's what uh, faith is about. It's devotion to our path of awakening. And if we don't have that, if we don't have that faith, then it's not possible. We really have to have that faith, at least to take one step at a time on this path. I'd just like to read as as an ending. Um, You know, I took a a couple of times of walking on the Camino de Santiago uh, two different years, and it was really challenging for me to walk that far and also to to think that I could do it. And um, I went with a friend of mine, a nun friend, Virinyani, and she's a walker, she's a trekker, she's trekked in the Himalayas, and she's a, a great lady, a nun, Buddhist nun. And we would um, have to walk many, many miles sometimes. One time we walked as far as like 17 miles in, in a day. That, that's long, I mean, usually I'm used to walking like three miles. Um, so, but it was a time when I really wanted to do this. And um, it took a lot of faith for me to be able to do it. And she would stop at a place and say, Kamala, you see that place on, on that far hill, that high, kind of low mountain, high hill. And she said, from here we're going there today. Mm-hmm. And I would look at that and I would see there, there was, you know, like a hill and a valley and another one. And I'd say, I don't believe it. We have to think about where can we stop along the way to spend the night because going there is like not possible for me. But she said, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. You'll see. Mm-hmm. So we just, one step at a time, <clears throat> one step at a time. And when we got there, we got to that high place in the hill, and she said, look back. And I looked back, and I saw the many places where I stopped, and I said, I don't think I can go anymore. Or it was too hard on my hip, or something was wrong with the, my shoe, or that you know sore that I had there in my foot. Or I just didn't have the willpower to do it. And, or I just thought about something that would make me really upset or sad. And No, I don't want to do any more today. And she said, you keep going, she kept telling me. I have so much gratitude for her. And when she told me to look back, I looked back over there. There was a valley and a hill and another valley. And I saw that down there below where that village was that we came from. And I said, wow, I walked that far. So that year, that first year, I I walked 200 miles that year. It's about a 900-mile path. I only walked 200 miles of it. And the next year, I walked 300 miles of it. So I could say I've got shoes that I walked 500 miles in. (laughs) Anyway, this poem by David White, uh, which is called Santiago, kind of explains describes our path, even our path of practice. Because sometimes we don't see what's ahead, but we still keep going. So the poem is, The road seen, then not seen. The hillside hiding, then revealing the way you should take. The road dropping away from you, as as if leaving you to walk on thin air then catching you, holding you up when you thought you would fall. And the way forward, always in the end, 
the way that you followed, the way that carried you into the future and brought you to this place, no matter that it sometimes took your promise from you, no matter that it had to break your heart along the way, the sense of having walked from far inside yourself out into the revelation to have risked yourself for something that seemed to stand both inside you and far beyond you, that called you back to the only road in the end you could follow, walking as you did in your rags of love. So that's our path. And I think the question we all are here with is, can we keep trusting ourselves day by day, moment by moment? Let's sit for just a moment and um, let the words dissolve. At the end, um, I heard Patrice sing Sadhu, because I wanted to tell you, it was like last night, at the end of a Dhamma talk, why we say this Sadhu, 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 is because you're saying that I'm in alignment. You know, I want, I want to understand this. So at the end of a Dharma talk, when Manindra would give me a talk, he'd say, now say sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> he'd, he'd, he'd tell me to say it. Because he, that, would give me, that would be empowering for me to say. So that's not a, for, about me. It, it means well said. But it's about you to say that. So say sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.